Well, when I was 10 years old, I got thrown into a different culture, southern culture. I didn't grow up in the south, but my parents sent me to a camp once a month in the summertime in southern Missouri, which was populated by many people from Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, all in the south. And I had to navigate this southern culture, square dances, a genteel way to treat ladies, good old boy attitudes, manners. It was just different as a Yankee going to this camp. And the thing is, there was one recognition at this camp that kind of culminated its culture. And at the end of the term of camp, there would be a prize given out called the I'm Third Award, which stands for God first, other second, I'm third. Kind of ironic that you'd give an award for being humble, but that's what they did at this camp. And then I started to realize as I was in the culture of this camp is that people would go out of their way to clean the cabin, to do the dishes, to be last in line, not first. And I started to realize that people were not doing it out of their heart desire to do it because they were gunning for the I'm third award. That's why they were doing it. Who would do something like that? Who would gun for an award like that? I mean, who would do that? I mean, that's ridiculous. You see, every organization has a culture we try to understand and fit into. The hallways of your school, that I'd be accepted and popular, what do I need to do to fit in? Corporate culture, how do I climb the ladder? How do I get the promotion, the raises? Maybe when you join a new family and get married, how do I be liked by my sister-in-law, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law? What things do I need to do to fit in? Figuring out the code for success in an organization, in a culture. Is that how the church works? Is it some equation we need to all figure out together that it can lead to our success in this body? That we can be recognized? That we can be established? That we can fit in? Is it a lock that we try to crack so we can gain influence and power within this organization? Is that how the church works? For some, it does. Let's see how it goes for them when you act in such a way. So, let's read. I'm just going to read in sections. I'm going to go all the way to verse 11. not going to go all the way through. Um, that's in the worship guide from 12 to 16. But I'm going to look first at 32 through 35, and then we'll keep on going. So let's pay attention to God's word this morning. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We've been going through the book of Acts, and this is a documentation of 30 plus years of amazing growth of God's work through the church. And as people outside the church said, they've turned the world upside down, as we hear in Acts later on. And here it starts with 120, a ragtag group that have been given the overwhelming task and message that they're supposed to spread it to the ends of the earth, the gospel. Well, again, they face these obstacles. Again, these are not well-esteemed people in Jerusalem society, but they are told they should go out and spread the gospel. And we've seen in Acts what's happened. They received the power of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, Peter gives that sermon. Many people come to faith, 3,000. And then we get a little of a breath. We hear about what's going on in the community, the beauty of this church community. And then we get back to the narrative. The narrative of what's happening in this community. We see a healing. We see the pressures that they then receive from the political and religious leaders on the outside. David covered this beautifully over the past two weeks. So, after that long narrative where we saw a healing and external pressures forcing against the church and still the church expanding, we get another breath like Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, which we saw two weeks ago. We see the breath and what's happening in the church. This is a passage that's very similar. And I just read it. And we see the things that we talked about before. Teaching, fellowship, service, worship, evangelism. Evangelism will come a little bit later in the chapter. And I could just basically repeat the same things I said two weeks ago. I guess I'll add a couple more items from verses 32 through 35 that we see. One, we see a great assortment of people. As historians have seen the early church and what we've seen here in the ways that some people have a lot to give, some people have hosted groups of people, we have an assortment of white collar and blue collar. We have large homes and small homes where people come from. We have healthy and sick, married, single, men, women. And the thing is, through all of these differences, they have everything in common that is said here, right? One heart, one soul, all in common. That's where the word we get, koinonia, it's from koinonia, which is fellowship, the idea of having things in common. And if you think, when I hear about this, and then I'm sharing everything, selling things, all these things, I feel like I'm in a hippie commune, right? I feel like I'm in maybe the Amana colonies of Iowa in the 19th century. Is that what the church was? Just this ascetic community that people just gave everything up? Well, you might not know this, but there's actually, those kind of ascetic communities actually existed at that time. The Essene community, which is a Jewish community, what they would do, it was a commune. That before you could join this Essene community, you had to give everything up before you could join the group. But the gospel in the church community is different. It's not the same here. It wasn't an obligation to give everything up to join the community. 
Here's the thing, and we've said it many times in the church. Religion says this. You give up things, you do things, then you're accepted. But the gospel in the church says this, and this is how these people are transformed. God gave everything to you. You were accepted fully by him, and then you gave graciously. You see the difference. These people have been given out of the power of the gospel that has been working in their life. And here they're united under the banner of Christ, and it is a beautiful picture. One commentator that talked about this, this passage, this is what he wrote about it, said this. We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We, in our day, are content not just to jealously retain what we possess, but callously rob others. They sold their possessions in those days for others. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. Do you know who said that? John Calvin. 500 years ago. It could have sounded like it was written yesterday. Oh, how we don't change as humanity. Hopefully, we are ones that are marked this way as the church. Well, I joke that I could just basically give you the same sermon from this passage, verses 32 through 35, but Luke does something more. He zooms in into three different characters and how they live this out. So, if I wanted to really continue, if we wanted to continue with this romantic idea of what the early church looked like, hugs and kisses and giving up property and selling things and caring for those, we could skip this passage. I feel like it's maybe like fast-forwarding a movie that you like as a parent, but you know might have some scenes that are not good for the kids. So you let them watch some of it, and then you fast-forward the kissing scenes or the violent scenes or whatever it might be. That's how we could go through the Bible here. But this beautiful picture of the New Testament, this romantic picture, we might get more of an honest view, a realistic view. So you got to understand this. Again, the, the church is facing all these pressures. How are they going to grow? How is this going to work? For many of us, we feel the same things in the pressure of the church today. David, as he's covered the past two weeks, we saw the pressure from the outside. How the political figures and religious figures were pressuring the church on the outside. The obstacles were outside of the church. But today we're going to see that there are obstacles and pressures not from just outside the church, but also internal problems that could cause devastation in the church. So it's not just outside, but it's also inside. If anything we've tried to show at Emmaus Road is that the Bible is honest about God's people. Honest about what God's people actually do. We don't keep skeletons in the closet. No, the Bible takes them out and has, us, has them dance in front of us. We see the depravity 
of humanity. Because I said Calvin before, I might as well use that word in there too. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, I was reading something that he said that I'd never picked up before, that I've observed among some of my non-Christian friends. Maybe some of you have these thoughts. The observation he made is that people make two contradictory statements about Christianity in the Bible. For one, when they read the Bible, they say it's so romantic and it's so fairy tale. Those miracles and things, it's too good to be true. But at the same time, Lloyd-Jones says, people say, the Bible is so harsh. God is so mean. There's all these things that people do that are so grotesque. And here's what Lloyd-Jones says. You can't have both objections. Right? Because you can't say the Bible's not true because of this fairy tale, and the Bible's not true because it paints a realistic picture. The Bible is honest. It tells it like it is with people. Again, my friends say to me, you know, Dan, the Old Testament, that was the harsh God. But then enlightenment happened, and then you got the New Testament God. There's just two different gods between the Old Testament and New Testament. I, and this is what I say to my friends. You have not read Acts, have you? <laughs> You're going to see a harsh God. Even in the New Testament, God does not change. Also, an argument that I've heard many times, maybe you have this argument too. Dominic Crossan makes this argument, a major antagonist against Christianity. I'm going to call him an antagonist because he really is. He says, the gospel moved forward, Christianity moved forward because the apostles were amazing recruiters. They were amazing at propaganda. If you were an amazing recruiter and amazing at propaganda... This is a story you'd probably leave out. This is one that you don't have people flocking when you read this story to the church. Unless it's true and honest. And it's what happened. Okay, I've set you all up. You're all wondering, what's going to happen? Some of you have read ahead, I know. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's exciting. I love narrative. So it un unfolds, right? Okay. Am I the only one excited? Okay. You're excited. Yeah, Noah's excited. Great. Thanks, Noah. Um, okay. So let's read, shall we? Let's find out. Okay. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down 
and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, deep breath. Shocking. And sometimes when we get shocked, we can get distracted about maybe what the message is trying to communicate here. There's probably lots of questions you might be asking right now about this passage. So one thing I need to do is kind of answer some of the questions that you might have, put this in context, and also then give you the main idea of the passage. Okay? So first thing you might have missed, because the death of two people like that might have missed that this really is a story of comparison and contrast. Is it not? The two verses at the beginning were not about Ananias and Sapphira, but they're about Barnabas, right? This is in literature called using a foil, right? A foil is using one character to show the contrast between other character or characters, like in this story. Barnabas, we saw, sold a field. He was very generous. And he, what he did was, he fulfilled what we saw happening in the community. Giving things up, and then giving it to the apostles to spread. And we also see with Barnabas something happening. We're going to actually read a lot about Barnabas as we go through the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, you see Barnabas follows Paul in his missionary journeys. And we also see that Barnabas is a clue right here that this message of the gospel is going to go out further than just Jerusalem. Because, right, he's from Cyprus. We could assume the first hints of this message going worldwide. But here's the thing in where we see the comparison and contrast. Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing. Sell a piece of property. But to much different results. Barnabas, again, we read more about his life. But Ananias and Sapphira, it's over. So what's the big difference between the two? Why the harsh result for Ananias and Sapphira? And what is this communicating to us? Well, I think we've seen so far in Acts that money can really be a stumbling block. And the thing is, it can come in all different ways to deceive us. This is not a new story, is it not? There was an insider among the apostles that what did he do? He sold out Christ to buy a piece of property. Now we have insiders that sell a piece of property to deceive the church. 
See, internal struggles and problems in the church, they do not end. They continue, and they can be a major problem. So Peter confronts the lie that Ananias did, that he sold the property for a certain amount of money, but then only gave them some of the money. And Peter is acknowledging he has lied against God. Again, to give clarity to some of the questions that we might have, these are not some magical words or incantation that Peter said to kill these people. No, this was an act of God that they died. And the second time, when it happens with Sapphira, Peter is being prophetic that this is what's going to happen to Sapphira. He didn't do it himself. God is the one that brought judgment. We also have to see the picture we see here of the Holy Spirit in this passage. This is one of the greatest passages showing the unity between the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. That it is the triune God. And we see unity that if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you're speaking against God. Because they are one and the same. And all that warm and fuzzy stuff we have about the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, giving a great message... Um, all these kind of things, it also has great power. Power to convict, not just to win souls, but to convict our own souls and even bring judgment and death. Also, we see the influence of Satan. We see that Satan is able to fill Ananias' heart. But ultimately, as we read later on, it is Ananias' decision. Yes, the devil can deceive us. The devil can influence us, but it is ultimately our decision. We can't say, blame it on the devil. Lastly, I want to point this out. Many times this passage has been abused to talk about and, and guilt people into giving money. Money is an issue here, but it's not the major problem. The major problem is the deception about the money. He was, Peter was like, listen, you could have sold the property if you wanted to. You didn't have to. You could have sold the property and only given some of the money. You didn't have to give all the money. The point is that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church about how much they sold the property for. Deceiving them. And what is behind this, and I think these are great points here. Ananias and Sapphira wanted prestige in the church without sacrifice. They lied to gain a better reputation in the church. And their motive wasn't for the poor, but to build their own ego. Look at Barnabas, the encourager. I want this. Look at this beautiful community. We want to be well-liked. We can use it for maybe money and we can be well-liked and have money at the same time. Deception. The second shock, of course, is Sapphira dying in one of the more, more haunting parts of Scripture. Saying, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Wow. Does that mean... If we lie and try to deceive God, we are going to die like this? Should rephrase another way. 
If we lie and deceive God, are we going to die? Yes. And no. Let me unpack this. No doesn't mean the immediate result of us sinning is death. There are times in the Old Testament, I think this refers back to it, Joshua 7 with Achan, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus, where we see when these individuals sinned and deceived, they died right away. But that's not the normal case. Right? The very beginning. What does Genesis say? If you eat of this true, you shall surely die. Did Adam and Eve die right away? No. So we won't die right away, but yes, we will die because of sin. I was with a woman this week who was dying, and we were talking about the gospel. And I said to her, you are going to die because of your sin. Some of us think we're dying, that's, you know, probably bad health or whatever it might be. This is the normal thing. No, it is not the normal thing. It is because we have rebelled against God and that is our punishment. When we see people die, the most loving and caring people we can think of our life, guess what? They have died because of their sin. We all will. And for some commentators and other theologians that are probably of one persuasion, as I'm pointing left, well, it must have been a heart attack for Ananias. No, the second time it happens, you realize this isn't some fluke. This is an act of God and his supernatural work at play. And also, the way it's written, we see it happen one time, the second time, it makes us think, wait, what about us? Both times, the death of Ananias and at the, at, after the death of um, Sapphira, we see fear comes upon the body. In fact, the first time the word church is mentioned, ecclesia, in all of Acts, is this passage. Why mention the church in this way for the first time under fear? I think it's for this reason. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's to show this organization, this group, this community is not ruled by simply procedures, hugs, policies, flowcharts, slick marketing, charismatic talkers. No, this organization is run by a holy God who will get the church's attention, who is transcendent, who knows all things, who will work no matter how much you try to deceive, no matter how good you try to look, no matter how much you wrap the package in something beautiful, God knows and he will find out because he is the head of the church. So um, growing up in church, um, in my church, which is more of the buddy Jesus 
hugs. Jesus is fun and loving. Um, we never got to this passage. How about you, anyone get to this passage growing up? You know, some people get this passage? Yeah, some did. I, it's interesting talking to my Catholic friends um, growing up. You know, I grew up in Buddy Jesus, Love Jesus Church, right? They grew up in judgment, you know, holy God, reverence, Catholic Church, right? And I love how we do this, right? We kind of move from one side of the pendulum to the other side of the pendulum, right? And here's the thing. If we really want to understand God's love and his graciousness and how good he actually is, we have to understand how holy and set apart he is. The more you water that down, the more you don't understand how much he lavishly loves us. When we avoid his holiness, we do not get a full understanding of his graciousness. Some would argue to me, this is the kind of passage you want to skip. It doesn't play well in our age. You shouldn't read these things as a church. You shouldn't give a sermon on something like this. This doesn't fit our culture and what our culture wants. I wonder about that. I was re recently watching the movie Spotlight again. Spotlight documents the Boston Globe's revealing of the Catholic abuse scandal, the priests. And one major thing that this movie was a book and um, points out, true story, is that the Catholic Church in Boston was complicit as a culture in allowing priests to do this. And some of the reasoning was this, the church does so many good things, we don't want to ruin the church's reputation. And what blew me away in watching this movie among these reporters who were talking to each other that break this story, many of them came from Catholic backgrounds, is that they were saying to themselves, where is justice? Isn't it ironic that those that have left the church are actually the ones talking in the prophetic voice to the church? Our culture wants transcendence. Our culture wants truth. Our culture wants judgment. And when we as a church water it down, cover it over, hide it, you wonder why they don't want to listen to us. Isn't it fun to bash the Catholic Church, right, as evangelicals? Good thing we don't have these problems. Good thing it doesn't come to us. I hope we've seen over the past few years as leader after leader in our movement 
have used prestige and power and played the game of the church and they have said, where is a holy God? And they have sinned. Here's a question that is asked by Peter that will continue to be asked through the book of Acts. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? That is a great question for us. How do you test the Spirit of God? Do you get to a place at my work like one individual in evangelicalism did just recently, that it got exposed. I've worked hard for God. I've done all these things for God. I deserve this. I deserve that. I deserve it so much I can sexually abuse women because I am outside of the rules. How is it that us, that we might be testing the Spirit of the Lord? If you're going to hear anything, here is the major point. The book of Acts is showing us that the power of Christian community is not of human construction, but of the triune God. And when we act differently, it will lead to serious destruction in our lives and in our churches. How does this start? It starts subtly. How can I use this organization? How can I use this community for my gain? Something that I want. I want to be accepted. I want prestige. I want influence. I want value. What can this organization do for me for my own gain? These are nice people. I mean, if you're going to join a nice group, it's Christians, right? These are nice people for the most part. It's a good organization. I can hang out here. I might not believe in a holy God, but I can hang out here. How can we test the Spirit of God? And then you can see how this thinking could just metastasize. Oh, this church is here to give me what I need. That leads to abuse and greed and power control and many, many other problems we have seen in the church. Please hear me on this. The beauty of the church is the place where the Spirit can work on those fleshly and selfish desires. That we can start to recognize in our hearts our desire for control, money, and prestige. And the church is where we can put those things to death. And they cannot be fed. And for too long, 
In our culture, we have celebrated celebrity in the church, and we have fed it. We have fed prestige and recognition and power and control, and it has ruined pastors. Church, pray for me. Pray for me that God would protect me. A common prayer that I pray the Lord, I pray that you would pray for me. Do not give me success. Now hear what success means. Worldly success. Do not give me this. Because it could destroy me. I want to be done with this thing and still love my wife and still love my kids and still love Jesus. If I do that, that's success. It's so easy for us to fool others. But this passage shows you cannot fool the Holy Spirit. You just can't. He knows what's happening in your life. And he wants to work on these things. That might sound very convicting and very humbling. But that's what we should be doing. But what if I get found out, you might say? I'll be cast out. This is so, so interesting about the, the formation of the church in Acts. That Peter is gathering what kind of people? And what we've seen so far. He's gathering people that he has said, you have crucified Christ. A sin worse than that deception, you would think. But he's saying, you people that crucified Christ are welcome to be in this group of people. Think about how great your sin is. Guess what? His grace is greater. And those are the people in the church. You might say, well, if I don't have these things, if I don't have prestige or power or money, I'll be nothing. What will I have? You know what the church says? No. You are finally something when you're found in Christ, not in those things. It makes total sense that the people would be giving up their property, giving up their prestige, giving up their things because they knew that their value was found in what Christ had done for them. They had surrendered it all. Well, we can't let ugliness be found out in the church. It will sink the church. We've got to hide it. No, the gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church. God's great mercy through history, through church history, is that he has disciplined the church and he has rose the church. There are seasons of revitalization and there are seasons of repentance. And that is a sign of healthiness. Are we a church that will let the Spirit of God work in our personal lives, in our church? Or will we try to quelch it? As much as we try, it will be found out. 
So let God work in us now. For seven years, I tried my hardest to fit in at Kanaka camps. I tried the good old boy thing, tried doing the dishes, being a good athlete, fitting into Southern culture. But I'm so glad the message that permeated that camp was the message of Christ. That I was surrounded by amazing mentors, great counselors that came alongside me and told me, guess what, Dan, your value is found in Christ. Even if you're awkward and weird or whatever you are as a teenager, you don't have to try. You can find your value in him. And I remember my last year at that camp, I just stopped trying. And I just said, Christ, my identity is in you. I'm just going to live that out while I'm here. Because this is how they want me to live. I'm going to live this way. And when I did, that's when I won the I'm Third Award. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. When you lose your life in him, you will gain things that are greater than any of this world can provide. The power of this group. It's not found in how likable you are. How much money you give. How much you serve. How charismatic you are in front. Whether you can give a lot to David and I in this building of this church. No, your value is found in Jesus in him, stop trying. Stop trying. Surrender to him.